Everybody bring your baby bottles back with your money in it for CareNet. If it's full of change, it's heavy, so it's like... So I get my figure. <laughs> if, you, if you did, take a bottle for CareNet. Uh, those are due back today. If you forgot, drop it off this week sometime. We'll get it over to them. Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. If you have a smartphone, you download an app called Uversion. I can just record this and play it every week. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Uversion. Click on Live. It'll bring us up by your GPS. You get all the sermon notes and the verses on your phone because we are cool like that. Uh, we help out a group called Community Partners in Caring. There's some elderly people in our community that need a little bit of help and assistance, and so we go in and actually help them. And if you would like to help with that, there's a sign-up in the back. Put your name on there. We don't know when the next one's going to be, but if you would just like to simply be part of that and be called to see if you're available next time we do that, go ahead and sign up, and we'll give you a call the next time that happens. And the last thing that I would like to tell you before we start is this. Uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base, they sent a very nice thank you to all of you guys, if you don't remember, before Christmas, we had you guys bring bags of cookies. We gave them out to everybody that morning, let you guys eat as much as you wanted, and then we took everything that was left and we gave it to the people who had to work on Christmas Eve at Vandenberg. And they were very thankful. That they said a lot of people forget about us on Christmas Eve. So they were very thankful and they think you guys are just the greatest. Because you are. I said, you're not the greatest. Jesus is, but that's okay. Why don't you guys stay on the reading of God's Word? It says Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 19. And it says, They will summon peoples to the mountain and there offer sacrifices of righteousness. They will feast on the abundance of the seas, on the treasures hidden in the sand. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand how to feast on the treasures that you have so graciously bestowed upon us as your people. That we would live in the grace and the abundance that you give us and that we would learn how to love as you call us to love so that you are honored and glorified. Amen. Have a seat. So I'm going to give you a disclaimer as we start this morning. Uh, we are doing a series called The Missing Words. And I, I kind of want to turn you guys into crazy, brilliant biblical scholars just a little bit, make you really smart. But some people say I have been losing you a little bit as we go through this series because there's so much information. Sorry. But I really think there's a lot in here that we can learn about how smart and brilliant Jesus actually was and how Jesus taught and that Jesus wasn't some country bumpkin that just rambled off some saints. He was actually quite brilliant. Everything I say is not to show you that I'm smart. It's to show you that Jesus was extremely brilliant in what he did. And so that's kind of why we cover these missing words to help you guys understand who Jesus was, how he taught. And again, my intent is not to lose you, but just stick with me. You'll learn lots of really, really cool things, hopefully. Uh, the missing words are words that Jesus intentionally left unsaid to convey a deeper meaning. Sometimes to increase the impact of a statement, rabbis, when they taught, would put, quote part of a scripture, they would leave the rest unsaid and allow the people listening to fill in the blanks so that they would then do the hard work of finding out what was actually being said. Jesus did the same thing. If you open a study Bible and you look at all the cross-references through the Old Testament of how Jesus taught, you will see over and over again all the things that he references throughout the scriptures. And Jesus did not reserve this technique for the trained religious elites. He did this with everybody he talked to, to his disciples, to fielding questions, to ordinary people. He did it all the time. 
and sometimes his references are obvious, sometimes they're very subtle, maybe only a word or two. In fact, sometimes knowing what Jesus didn't say becomes as important as knowing what he did say. And this doesn't mean that all through the Bibles there's hidden Bible codes and you've got to figure them out. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying at times Jesus taught like this to increase the impact of a statement. And so when you understand the things that he says, you get important background and understanding his meaning more fully in what he was doing. And if you miss his reference, at times you will miss his point. And so today is not so much about the missing words, even though it is, but it's more about condensing of words, bringing things together. And you may have heard what I'm going to talk about this morning a hundred times, but hopefully this morning will just be a little bit different with it. Uh, anyone know what sweetened condensed milk is? Yeah, it's freaking yummy, right? That's, that's what it is. It's, it's like a, some of the best stuff on the planet. It's like, it's like liquid sugar and it makes pie filling taste so good. Literally what it is, is it, is it is milk that all water has been removed and then they add sugar into it and it yields a very thick, sweet product. And when it's canned, it'll last for years without refrigeration. So Jesus kind of does this this morning. He leaves out many, many words in order to condense his meaning to make it much more sweet makes a much stronger point. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus has just finished speaking about a wedding banquet, that the religious elite that they were missing because they saw themselves and what they wanted to do as more important than God's work in the world. They saw all that they were doing as God's work when they were truly missing what God was calling them to. And so Jesus in Matthew 22, in a few words, says, you're going to hell. It's very nice. I know you hear all the time how Jesus was so kind, and Jesus was very kind. Oh, Jesus was so good, and Jesus was very good. Oh, Jesus was so loving. Yes, Jesus was very loving, but Jesus also was not a liar. And he talked more about hell than he did about heaven. And now we like to think of the Old Testament God as all hopped up on emotion, and the New Testament Jesus, oh, he's the God that's got ribbons in his hair and ready to come and do aromatherapy and massage our feet and to tell you everything you want to do is okay as long as you're true to your heart. No, that, that's not how he works. He says, you're evil, you don't know what good is, this is why you must follow God. And so after Jesus confronts the religious people about their hypocrisy, they get very angry, as most people do when you confront them about their hypocrisy and about their false gods, especially people who are very religious or see Jesus as a sky fairy. So they ask him about taxes, they ask him about marriage, they ask him about wives, they ask him about a woman who was married and her husband died and another guy married her and he died and then another guy married her and he died up to like seven people. And they're like, so, so whose wife is she in the resurrection? I guess if you're a really hot chick, you got to worry about that. If I me, mean, I don't got to worry about that too much. It's never going to happen to me. And so in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus shuts them all down and he says this. Jesus replied, you are an error because you do not know the scriptures. This is a hard thing to say to the religious elite. They have been trained. They're like, we are the ruined religious class. What do you mean we don't know the scriptures? And he says, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Everybody gets a little freaked out. They all kind of shut up. They don't ask Jesus any more questions. So the Pharisees, another group of religious people, come along and say, okay, well, we're going to stump him. We'll get him. So they got something. They come up that they think is sure that's going to stump Jesus. Starting in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, to understand the question, you have to understand the question. There's, up to Jesus' day at this point, there have been thousands of years that the Jews have gone through. They have a huge pedigree of prophets and priests and kings that spoke with and knew God. Jacob, David, Isaiah, Moses, the temple, the giving of the land, the parting of the Red Sea, Egypt. And the Hebrews had a propensity to look at their lives and their land and think they had a privileged relationship with God. And you know what? They did. 
They did have a privileged relationship with God. God said that you, my people, are to be a blessing to the entire earth. Their job was to go and bless the entire earth. You, as God's people today, are his chosen people. You are called to be a blessing to the world. That means your life and work is probably harder than anybody else's because you are called to be God's ambassadors to the rest of the world. So he calls his people this. You are my priest to the entire world. This is privileged relationship. And these words that came to them, they believed that God's words that came to them were life and truth. Jewish people believe that at a specific moment in human history, God had spoken directly with their ancestors. This happened soon after they were freed from slavery, traveling in the wilderness, part of which would become Israel. And they were camped near a mountain. And their leader, Moses, goes up and talks to God. And God spoke and gave a copy of what he says to Moses. And they came to believe that these, these words became the first five books of the Bible, the Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were a copy of what God said. And they called this Torah. Torah. Now, Torah can mean different things. It can mean teachings or instructions. It can mean more simply even just the way. The way. When Christianity first came about, you know what Christianity was known as? The way. The way. Acts 19.9, Acts 19.23. And so they believed that Torah was life and truth. They actually called Torah the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus shows up, what does he call himself? The way, the truth, and life. Yeah, it's very interesting. And look at John 1 and 1. Jesus was called the Word. Of God. It's kind of interesting how, how it all goes together. And so they believe that these books, the Torah, teachings their way, was life. And Torah became known as the law. And there came a belief among Jews and rabbis that if you could speak all of the Torah, all of the words of these five books in one breath, you would then pronounce the name of God. So they had people who would devote their lives to learning. They also believed that the Word of God it was living and active in the world. If you, the, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is written from a Jewish perspective. In Hebrews 4.12 it says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You see this whole idea of a Jewish perspective on what the words of God were. Genesis chapter 1, God's words bring creation into existence. Isaiah 55, God says His word goes out and doesn't come back void. It always accomplishes what it is meant to accomplish. And every time God acted in the world, it was His word. So when you hear the words, the law, it can be the whole Old Testament, it can be God's commands, but here again it refers to the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses the way, the truth, and the life. For Jewish people, there has always been a discussion of how you live the Torah practically in your lives. Most people in Jesus' day probably had the entire Torah memorized if you were a Jew. And what you find in Moses' books, again, are a set of laws, 613 of them to be exact. And they are broken into three categories. The first category is what are called ceremonial laws. This is like the temple, the priesthood, the sacrificial system. And again, if you want to see how this is all fulfilled in Jesus, read the book of Hebrews. It's an amazing accounting of it. Then there were civil laws. The God's people didn't have a king. God was their king. So he gave decrees that ran their governmental system. And so this would be things like cities of refuge and, and judgment and clothing and what, and what you wear. And then there were moral laws. Moral laws would be like the Ten Commandments. Don't kill anyone, don't steal anything, don't lie, don't gossip, don't worship false gods, don't listen to boy bands, things like that. <laughs> okay, there are 613 of these. Now, a lot of people today, they will become a Christian. They get really excited about who God is, and they're like, man, I'm going to read the Bible. And so they're going to start from the beginning and just get it all. So they start in Genesis, and you get through it, and you're okay. You get Exodus, it gets a little bit harder, especially about chapter 20. It gets a little bit harder, and then you, hit, and then you all of a sudden you get to Leviticus, and you're like, done. 
And you skip to the next book, right? And then you're like, oh, numbers, yeah, done. And you skip and you go to Deuteronomy, done. And all of a sudden, you're just confused. You know, cut the goat's head off, don't scatter two types of seed, don't wear a polycotton blend, can't eat shrimp. What's going on, right? You're like, I don't know what's going on with this. So some people take this and they want to go and take the whole law and apply it all to today. This is called moralism. Some people want to take it and just get rid of it altogether, and you can't do that. So the question they come and ask Jesus with, which is the greatest commandment in the law? That's a good question. It's a question that we could actually ask. Jesus, what's the greatest thing in the entire Old Testament, in the law, in these first five books of way of truth and life? What are the things that we should know? It's a good question. So they ask him, out of our heritage, our very words of life, pick one. And tell us why that is the most important commandment in the law. But they also don't want Jesus to answer it correctly because they're really like, you better not jack it up because we'll kill you if you get it wrong. They're hoping he can't answer. Tell me, Mr. Jesus, smarty pants, you're so smart. What's the greatest answer? And what he gives them is condensed words. He leaves out a bunch of missing words, condenses it together, and tells them which is the most important. Now, before I get there, I want you to open to Psalm chapter 15. I'm going to show you something else in this. Throughout Jewish people, throughout Jewish history, people have actually tried to condense the laws down to something that makes it more uh, understandable. Never as sweet as Jesus. See, that's my condensed milk thing. It's kind of... All goes together. So in Psalm chapter 15, leave your finger in Matthew because we're going to go back there. It was taught that there are 365 negative commands and 248 positive ones of these 613 laws. And so rabbis believed in Psalm 15, David actually can reduce them to 11. Psalm 15, starting in verse 2. One, he whose walk is blameless. Two, and who does what is right. Three, who speaks the truth from his heart. Four, and has no slander on his tongue. Five, who does his neighbor no wrong. Six, and casts no slur on his fellow man. Seven, who despises the vile man. Eight, but honors those who fear the Lord. Nine, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Ten, who lends his money without usury. Eleven, and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Eleven. Open to the book of Isaiah, chapter 33. It's to the right, just in case... You're wondering, to the right. Isaiah chapter 33, they believe Isaiah got it down to six. Isaiah gets down to six. Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets Israel has ever had. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 15. See, I'm nice. I'm letting you get there. Ramble, ramble, la, la, la. Isaiah 33, verse 15. One, he who walks righteously. Two, and speaks what is right. Three, who rejects gain from extortion. Four, and keeps his hand from accepting bribes. Five, who stops his ears against plots of murder. And six, and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil. Then we've Isaiah got it down to six. And I'm not going to make you turn to the other ones because we'd be here all day with you trying to find the books. But they believe Micah got it down, Micah got it down to three. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? One, to act justly. Two, and love mercy. And three, and to walk humbly with your God. They believe Amos got it down to two. Amos 5, 4. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. One, seek me, two, and live. They believe Habakkuk got it down to one, Habakkuk 2.4, and the righteous will live by faith. And so it's not an, an out-of-the-way kind of question. It actually, it's not an odd request, but they're not expecting a good answer. So go back to Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he gives them a bonus. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, I know that you can't see what Jesus just did, but what he did was just brilliant. It's simply amazing because he is God, caused all of Scripture to be written, and he just applied the principle Jews used in that day called Gezerah Shavah. Everybody say Gezerah Shavah. 
yeah, Gesundheit. There you go. Gezerah Shabbat. This means similar laws, similar verdicts. If you find a similar word in different passages, you can link those passages together. Missing words, make a stronger point, put these things together. Gezerah Shabbat. And I know you're like, Ebenezer who? Right, okay. So I'm going to teach you a couple words today. They're big words, but just go with me because I'll put this all together. You'll be totally amazed. Two words. First one is called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Think of a, of a, of a backwater hick named Herman who runs around naked, right? Herman nude hicks. Okay? Hermeneutics. Got it? Hermeneutics is, okay, is the study of interpretation or the practice of interpretation of really any words, but especially in regards to the scripture. Hermeneutics comes from the Greek god Hermes. He was the messenger of Zeus. When Zeus had a message for mankind, Hermes would then have to interpret it to make it make sense to mankind. If you have ever had a word that you knew when you said and someone looks at you like, what does that even mean? And you try to explain it, you're practicing hermeneutics, principles of interpretation. Even me trying to tell you about hermeneutics, I am practicing a hermeneutic and telling you about hermeneutics. It is why one person can watch a crappy foreign film and think it's the best thing in the world, and someone else can watch a foreign film and think it's terrible because it's a crappy foreign film, and they're just different hermeneutics in how they see it. It's why Mel Gibson and Kenneth Branagh and Richard Burton can all play Hamlet, and some people will like some versions, and other people will like others. It's a hermeneutic. It's how you're interpreting what's taking place. The second word is a word called homiletics. And what this does is it takes hermeneutics and it places it together into an understandable sermon or a message so we can practically live it out. Now, here's an example. Jesus does something called the Sermon on the Mount. Hermeneutics would be how he understood God's revealed words, and his homiletic would then be how he preached it so it could practically be lived out by people. Now, the Jews, for ages, had their rules for interpretations, their hermeneutics. They believed that the Torah could be discussed on four different levels. What was simple, what was hinted at, what was a parable so it could be explored, and what was mystical. And so they believed that because it could be discussed on all these levels, it was then available to common people and nobles and judges and scientists and lawyers and civil servants and mystics. And in Jesus' day, many scholars looked at four different ways of interpretation with various hermeneutical rules. One rule that was all said about mystical things actually became known as the 42 rules of Zohar. There was another guy named Eleazar, and he came up with 32 laws. These tended to favor a parable type of hermeneutic. A guy named Ishmael came up with 13 laws, and these were aimed at judges and lawyers and scientists. And then there's a guy named Hillel. And Hillel is probably the most beloved rabbi that has almost ever lived in the history of Judaism. And he comes up with seven laws, and his laws are aimed at simple interpretation. And he is loved by people because he made his law simple so people could understand the scriptures, so people loved him. Rule number two of Hillel is Gezerah Shabbat. Similar laws, similar verdicts. Law number two of Ishmael is Gezerah Shabbat. Similar laws, similar verdicts. Law number seven of Eleazar is Gezerah Shabbat. Hillel himself was actually so influential, it's believed that everybody else's laws that come after him were based upon his. He was known for two main sayings. One of them was, uh, if not now, when? Right? You're like, oh, I heard that. Yeah, that's, that's Hillel. Good Jews that you all are. You know that. And the second one was, this, was the golden rule. A little different than Jesus said it. He says, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. All future rules, again, of Jewish hermeneutics of interpretation comes out of Hillel's view. He died in 10 AD after the birth of Christ. But the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the scribes, as they keep hammering Jesus with questions, they have used Hillel's rules of interpretation in all that they do. 
So they're coming to Jesus with his mindset in mind, with Hillel's mindset in mind. It is why I believe Jesus takes Hillel's greatest phrase and turns it from a negative into a positive. That which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow man. When in Matthew 7, 12, Jesus says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. There's a whole lot going on. He's like, Hillel is good, but he's not me, and he's not God. And this is why Jesus does, I think. So you, Jesus uses the rule of interpretation. Again, the second rule of Hillel, the seventh law of Eleazar, the second law of Ishmael, Gezerah Shavah. When he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So we're going to look at these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It's part of something known as the Shema. This is something that the Israelites and the Jews would pray every single day. They would start, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then they would say, hear Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is Shema Israel, Adonai, Elohim, Adonai, Echad. This is something that was very important then to remember because it didn't just talk about uh, rules like, oh, you must love your God. It's about relationship with God. If you look at the prophets that come after this place when Moses writes this, everything that they start to write about is what is true for Israel will be true one day for the entire world, this relationship with God. Zechariah 14.9 says, The Lord will be king over the whole earth, and on that day there will be one Lord, and His name will be the only name. Meaning that for all of humanity, God's name will stand alone. The whole world will realize that He is God and no other. In Zephaniah 3.9, God says, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him shoulder to shoulder, where they serve Him in relationship next to Him, walking, moving forward, and what He calls them to do together. And God reveals himself in the Torah to show what this actually means. And you see that, that in this, that God is not commanding a feeling, love the Lord your God. He is actually commanding action. For God, love is always action. If you've ever come in, if I've ever done your premarital counseling, uh, yay, good for you. If, if I haven't, what I normally tell people is that what you have to understand, that love is not always about feeling. Love is commitment. Love is action. And this is what God does. God demonstrates, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is action. Our love for each other is to be action. The Hebrew verbs for feelings, like like and love, refer to the actions that go with them. Loving God means, means placing Him first in your heart and all of your actions, everything you do, will come out of that love for God, period. The second thing he says is, love your neighbor as yourself. This is from Leviticus 19.18. It deals with other people. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people. Love, the, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I mean, there's really not a more basic verse in all of Scripture. Anybody have a problem with loving your, with, you shall love your neighbor? Right. I know you're like, you don't know my neighbor. Yeah, but you're not a great catch either, so whatever. I mean, even people who don't believe in God don't have a problem with that verse. But how do you live this? What does it mean to love? What isn't love? Who gets to decide what love is and isn't? And who's your neighbor? Is it the guy next door? Is it everybody you come into contact with? Everybody on the planet? In order to live this out and not just talk about it, someone has to make decisions about this verse and what it means to put flesh on it so it is lived out. It has to be interpreted with a hermeneutic. And if it isn't interpreted, it can't be put into action with the homiletic. And this is what Jesus just did with Gezerah Shavah. The word that starts both these phrases are the words va'ahavta. I think, but I have to. Okay? But I have to. Va'ahavta. Okay? What it means is you shall love. Va'ahavta, the Lord your God. Va'ahavta, your neighbor. 
You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love your neighbor. And Jesus takes their rule, Gezerah Shabbat, sticks these things together to show what God intended from the very beginning. Loving your God is going to be borne out by how you love your neighbor. You cannot love God and then despise the rest of His creation like they were despising Him. And what Jesus does is simply amazing. He points out their sin. He shows how to love God in practical ways. Shows he is a brilliant scholar. Teaches them he understands the scripture better than anyone, which he should because he wrote them. And he reestablishes God's intent for mankind in two sentences. Amazing. Simply amazing. Rabbis understood the Bible must be interpreted. They understood the role in their community was to study and meditate and discuss and pray and make those decisions to what that looks like. Rabbis are supposed to act like pastors, being good interpreters, helping people understand how you live out a text. Because you have your interpretation, but it must be lived out in what you do. And so a rabbi's set of rules, his hermeneutics, was a rabbi's interpretation of how to live the Torah. This became preached as his homiletic and was called his yoke, like you would put on oxen when they plowed a field. If you're still in Matthew, flip over to verse uh, chapter 11. Chapter 11. When you followed a rabbi, you were following him because you believed that rabbi's set of interpretations were the closest to what God intended throughout the scriptures. And when you followed a rabbi, what you did was you took upon you his yoke. In Matthew 11, verse 29, Jesus says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It doesn't mean, oh, everything's going to be all nice and easy for you. What it means is that it's simple. Jesus had simple interpretation. It was, follow me, you'll be good. Trust God for who he calls himself to be. A lot of people think that when Jesus came, he came to do away with the whole Old Testament. No. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He goes, I didn't come to do away with God's words. I came to show people what it looks like when the text is lived perfectly. He says, I am here to put flesh on these words. And that is exactly what he does. And that is exactly what he calls his people to do. Love God. Love your neighbor. For you and I, we must be a people who stop doubting Jesus and simply love our God. Love, love is emotion, but we should love God in a way that is directed toward action. Again, it is why Jesus links it to loving your neighbor. And your neighbor is everybody around you, everyone you come into contact with. And we must ask ourselves some hard questions. Where are we not loving our God by looking down on, judging, ignoring, disrespecting other people? Where are we not loving our God by putting all of our action and all of our energy into ourselves and what we want and not into the forward progress of the gospel? You see, God does call us to be his ambassadors and his priests to the entire world so the world would know what he is like by how you live, by how I live. And this becomes very important. So what does that look like? It looks like loving your neighbor as yourself because it will be borne out because you love God. When you love God, it is borne out by how you live. Do you see how it just goes together? Gezerah Shabbat. Very simple. Similar laws, similar verdicts. Today, I will tell you this. You need to let Jesus put flesh on his words, and that flesh needs to be you and how you live. I mean, this is one of the reasons every week that we come to communion, because it is a place of, reception, of, of reflection, of understanding that God has called you and I to be the flesh on those words, to be his hands and feet to the entire world we come into contact with. That we cannot simply come into a place like a church and sit here and be like, oh, that was nice, now I'll go home and treat my wife like garbage and, and throw junk in my neighbor's yard and, you know, whatever. Flip people off on the freeway because they drive like me, you know, things like that. You, you can't do that. 
we are called to live differently. And how are we going to, how does that look? It looks differently because we love our God more than we love ourselves. And so we live and love differently. In communion, you break that cracker, which represents Christ's Christ body that was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grapes, which represents His blood that was shed for you and I. So we can be a people of the Scriptures. We can be a people of, of God. People who have had their sins taken away so that we can walk in new life and show the world who Christ really is. So we're going to worship God through the communion. The band's going to come up and do a couple songs that kind of reflect on this whole idea of you and I living words that God has spoken to us. We're going to worship God through prayer. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer for anything, for anything, but especially if you treat the people around you like garbage, you need to go pray with them. Just to be brutally honest. Be like, I'm a total jerk and I need prayer because I don't want to be anymore. Because you shouldn't be. You should be God's flesh in action. When people look at you, they should be able to see who your God is and how He loves. Worship God through giving. There's offering boxes inside them on the back. We give because God gives so much to us. Giving is then simply part of our worship. We give that opportunity every single week. And I think there's a few cookies left in the back. And so you can have some cookies, meet some other people. I will tell you this. Uh, today is Super Bowl Sunday. Apparently it is almost like a national holiday. So uh, Jason and Shannon Harris have very graciously invited all of you guys, if you want to come over to their house, Hopefully it's big enough. Hey, no, I, I made sure before I said it. Uh, actually, on the information table, there's a little flyer. It has their address on it. Bring uh, something to drink and an appetizer to share and hang out in their house and get to know them and clean up when you're done. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> and, and hang out with, with other people. I mean, as believers, we are to spur one another on to who God calls us to be. We cannot do this alone. It is impossible to do it alone. So get together with some other believers and then go out and live the life in front of everybody else that God calls you to live. It is not enough to simply worship God in here. You worship God outside these walls because that is where He'll be honored and glorified, out there. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for being a God who makes things very simple for us as Your people. Loving You, loving others. Father, it's like, it's like Augustine said, you know, love, love God and do whatever you will because when we love you first, our entire lives change. Our hopes change, our dreams change. All that we do changes because we love you more than anything else. And this morning I ask that you would make that true for us, not just in words that we say, but in the actions that we do. that our hearts and our lives be fully devoted to you as our God. Yes, in, in emotion and love, but also in love and action. We ask that every single day you would change us and make us new and not leave us as we were the day before, but make us more into your likeness as the priests of your people. So everyone on this planet knows who you are and the great things you call your people too. For you are good and there is no one good like you. Amen.